So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Hello, welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman. I'm a professor at Stanford Law School and a psychologist. With me, as always, is Sarah Weinstein, a lawyer, a therapist, and external director of our Wellness Project. Our guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke. She's a psychiatrist who holds a number of academic positions at Stanford and is chief of our addictions clinic. Dr. Lemke is also the author of a terrific new book on the opioid epidemic, Drug Dealer MD. It weaves together two stories, the stories of the author and her patients, and the story of how doctors, drug companies, and lawyers helped create the epidemic. Thank you, Joe. I'm Sarah Weinstein, and I want to begin by welcoming you, Dr. Lemke, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. As you know, I also loved your book and have recommended it to many clients. In this podcast, we're going to focus on an issue that is most important to our listeners, how people in high-pressure jobs, such as law, slip into substance abuse. Dr. Lemke, you've seen a report on the rate of substance use among lawyers. Were you surprised by the results? Actually, I was. I wasn't aware prior to reading that article that lawyers have higher rates of uh, problematic alcohol use than the general profession. And we know that in the general, I mean, that in the general population, we know that in the general population, uh, rates of alcohol misuse are around uh, 15 to 20 percent and rates of people who meet criteria for alcohol addiction are around 15%. Um, But I was interested to find that in the legal profession, it sounds like alcohol misuse is consistently between 20 and 25%. It's a sobering number. For those listeners, it means if you you look at five people in your law office or wherever you are, uh, one of them, uh, on average, Uh, might have a substance misuse problem. Thank you, Joe. It is helpful to think about it in that way, and it would be great if those people could feel comfortable speaking up about it or getting some help, which actually is a nice segue. One of the things we're trying to do on our podcast is to reduce the stigma in the legal profession uh, for talking about common emotions, and so we'd like to begin by asking if you would share a hard moment with us. Sure. Um, I was recently in a faculty meeting with a number of peers, and one of my colleagues uh, made a relatively benign suggestion, the details of which I don't remember now. And um, I lashed out at him uh, in a way that was full of rage and, frankly, quite inappropriate and out of character for me. And I really didn't care that much about, um, you know, what he was commenting on. So I walked out of that faculty meeting and I really had to take a moment and wonder what that was all about. And what I realized was that I was angry at that faculty member for not inviting me to speak at an annual conference that he organizes every year. He had invited me in a year prior and then in the follow-up year, he hadn't um, asked me to come back. And it took me a long time to process and figure out that basically, you know, I had experienced a narcissistic injury because of that. 
and was retaliating, retaliating against him in a very uh, immature and largely unconscious way. And that is something that I talk about in my book, the way that doctors actually retaliate against patients who narcissistically injure them. And that's very true when, when doctors are dealing with patients with addiction. Um, they feel incompetent in the face of their patient substance use problems because they're not well trained in that area. And so um, the way that many of us manage that sense of incompetence is to retaliate against those type of patients, to, uh, to condescend toward them, to, to refuse to treat them, to talk badly about them behind their back. So, so this is, I think, an important concept that I'm certainly have experienced personally, and I think is relevant for anybody who puts an enormous amount of energy into their about doing a good job and how others perceive them. Um, that that we can be vulnerable to experiencing what is called a narcissistic injury, which in turn can then um, cause us to uh, unconsciously uh, lash out at others unconsciously and inappropriately. I just want to add that sort of in summary that um, you don't need to be a pathological narcissist to experience a narcissistic injury. Anybody who invests and cares about what they do uh, can experience a narcissistic, narcissistic injury unconsciously if that sense of competence is threatened. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lemke. I bet a lot of our listeners, if they took a moment, might think of a difficult client or if you're an academic, a difficult student, and kind of sense that same amount of helplessness and impatience that explodes. Uh, I'm certainly thinking of that prompted by your story. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing that story. I, I, your candor was really impressive, and I think if more people could look at themselves like that in the legal profession too, it would really be helpful. If all we did in this podcast is got all of our listeners to be mindful of the last time they lashed out at someone because they felt frustrated or, as you put it, narcissistically injured, uh, uh, that would be a success. I was just yes. going to say that, you know, in, in psychiatry, we get a lot of training in this area. Um, but it's probably training that would, you know, benefit many different types of professionals, um, a kind of a, you know, regular training in self-awareness. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and many parents as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that we wanted to, to kind of review is uh, how well your book and your work points out the things that drive substance use. And one of them is neighborhood. And if you we think of lawyers, what's the kind of neighborhood effect that you might imagine would, would push towards substance misuse? As I talk about in my book, there are three uh, major risk factors for the development of a substance use disorder, substance being the broad term for addictive uh, drugs and alcohol. And those three risk factors are uh, nature, nurture, and neighborhood. Nature is your genetic endowment. We do know that um, people who have a parent or grandparent with addiction history are at increased risk of uh, becoming addicted themselves, even if raised out of uh, the substance using home. Uh, in terms of nurture, we, we do know that early childhood trauma um, and, and other experiences can uh, increase the risk of, of developing addiction later in life. 
But a very big risk factor, which I think is often neglected, especially in the field of psychiatry, is what I call neighborhood, which is to say the environment in which you are living and the access to substances in that environment and the extent to which substance use is condoned or encouraged. Um, so, you know, if somebody who is by the virtue of uh, nature and nurture um, already at risk to develop a substance use disorder and then finds themselves in an environment uh, where addictive drugs and alcohol are readily available, then that, that person is really at incredible, incredible risk to, um, uh, you know, to try substances and become addicted to substances. That's exactly what happened with the prescription opioid epidemic that we're now facing. Doctors began uh, prescribing opioids more liberally, and those patients who were vulnerable to addiction uh, became addicted to opioids. And Sarah, I'm thinking in law, one neighborhood is the law school for law students, and it's typical for law student associations to have study breaks with lots of alcohol around. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. We had on Fridays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on Fridays and not just Fridays, I might say. Uh, what do you see for practicing lawyers? What's a neighborhood effect? Well, I'm not as intimately um, knowledgeable about your cultural norms, um, you know, in, in, in law. I, I know from talking with Sarah earlier that there is does seem to be um, a culture of using alcohol as a reward at the end of a, a long, hard work day. And that certainly is a narrative um, that I hear often in my patients who become addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, that, you know, kind of a work hard, play hard narrative um, where initially alcohol and drugs were just a way to relax or unwind at the end of the day. But over time, the use becomes excessive and then progresses to um, addictive use. Uh, the, the other the, the things that I think the law profession and, and the medical profession may share in common is um, heavy drinking at um, professional meetings. So this is certainly true in medicine, which I can speak to, um, that uh, many physicians, when they go to medical meetings, use that as a time to uh, drink heavily, or when they gather together at the end of the day, a time to drink heavily. Although, interestingly, it, it does vary from specialty to specialty, with surgical specialties having cultural norms of heavier drinking than maybe some other specialties. I wonder if litigators are our surgeons, Sarah. <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. I'm, I'm a little surprised to hear that surgeon statistic, and I think it would be pretty tough to figure out who are the bigger drinkers in our profession, Joe, uh, litigators or the corporate people. But, but what's coming to mind is um, how should young lawyers entering this profession where some of their models may themselves have problematic relationships with substances, how should these young lawyers and law students be thinking about this? Well, you know, picking up on what Dr. Lemke says, I think, first of all, you could do a little self-examination and say, are you at risk? And look at the genetics. And a lot of people are clearly at risk because they've got substance misuse in their family. And then think about, is this the way you're relaxing? And maybe could you substitute some other habit of relaxation? If you want to reward yourself at the hard day, a drink is one way. What might be some other ways? Yeah, I mean, I think every individual has to use their own creativity to figure out um, alternatives for relaxing or reward, rewarding themselves. That that's that can be very challenging 
for all of us. Um, but, I, but I agree with you, um, you know, having awareness of maybe your own vulnerability and then just being very watchful of the way that you're consuming drugs and alcohol, especially over time, because a, a lot of times um, people will begin drinking socially and then it will progress to more solitary use. The other common phenomenon I see is um, people normalizing their substance use by affiliating with other heavy users. Uh, so, for example, um, telling themselves, I'm, I don't have a problem because I don't use as much as Joe uses, um, but, but Joe may well be a hardened alcoholic. Um, so, so this is a very common phenomenon. People then begin to um, self-select their social groups um, among people who are, are heavy users. The other thing people do is they arrange a lot of social events uh, where there's bound to be uh, heavy alcohol use typically. And they tell themselves, well, I'm not, you know, I don't have a drinking problem. I only drink at parties or I only drink at professional gatherings where everybody else is drinking. But all of a sudden their, ca their calendar is full of parties and professional <laughs> gatherings. So, so another interesting phenomenon among a young, the younger generation, you know, today's law students in particular, is this, the telescoping of um, alcohol addiction among women. So, you know, a year ago, rates of uh, alcohol addiction were somewhere on the border of, you know, five to one uh, men to women. And that's not true today. Women have now almost caught up with men in terms of uh, meeting criteria for alcohol addiction. That's one interesting phenomenon. The other is in the article that you sent about um, uh, alcohol use among lawyers, one thing that I thought was fascinating was that um, those working as junior colleagues um, in law firms are more likely to drink heavily than others, which is, is fascinating because if you look at the animal, uh, animal literature and you look at the impact of where you are on the social hierarchy and substance use, we know, for example, that monkeys who are lower down in the social hierarchy, and this has been looked at in human bureaucracies too, will are more, more, more likely to get uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol than animals who are at the top of that hierarchy. So that, that's what uh, the, the study that you sent called to mind for me. I'm wondering if, if the younger generation slaving away, you know, in some large, very hierarchical law firm is uh, at increased risk because of the, uh, the intense hierarchy uh, for those junior colleagues. Yeah, and I'm thinking, as you say it, I'm also thinking that that's probably tied to greater emotional risk in general of clinical disorders and things like anxiety and depression. Yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. And that also ties into another question I had about what do you see as the relationship now? You talk in your book about um, pills and substances being a proxy for human attachment. And this, what you were just saying, made me think about um, how we're so, we have such a reliance now on electronic connections and maybe less so of a human connection. And I think of that in the law firm, not only with the hierarchy, but just in general. And I don't know if you see a connection there between the increased use of substances. Well, I think there's, there certainly is a connection. I mean, uh, I think the, the kind of individualistic, uh, the emphasis on individualism and personal achievement and the loss really of um, native tribes in a way um, is part of the stress more broadly of, of living in the modern era. Um, and, and, and those stresses certainly uh, contribute to uh, excessive alcohol and drug use. I think it's, it's easy to 
uh, vilify, you know, electronics and electronic media, because uh, we do know that uh, that that is a way for people to connect. Um, so it may be that, you know, there's a there's a bright side to that in that um, lonely and isolated people can find a tribe and a sense of connection through through. Um, you know, social media that wasn't available to them before. But obviously, on the other hand, you know, uh, using smartphones or whatever vehicle uh, to access the internet is is ripe for maladaptive and addictive use. Um, and I mean, you don't you don't have to have much of an imagination to look at how people use their smartphones compulsively all day long to recognize that. It, Directly on the dopamine reward pathway, and uh, that uh, you know we're we're all on some level addicts. You know something uh, you said helps us kind of check to see whether maybe there's an alcohol problem, and that's do we fill our calendar with uh, with drinking events? Uh, do we hang around people that are clearly heavy drinkers and compare ourselves versus them? I want to bring in the opioid uh, issue uh, a little bit. What's a similar thing that our listeners might be on the lookout for themselves or other people uh, with pain meds? Well, pain medication, you know, in the form of opioid analgesics is essentially the, the equivalent of heroin. There really isn't much uh, difference on a molecular level between heroin and most of the opioid uh, pain-relieving drugs that a doctor will prescribe. So that's the, the first thing to be aware of, that, that these are very potent and very potentially addictive um, pharmaceuticals. And although they're great short-term for pain, they don't work long-term for pain because the body and the brain adapts on a neurological level. Uh, so that they essentially uh, stop working and then you need more and more to get the same effect. Uh, people who are prone to um, becoming addicted to opioids um, are often people with chronic pain who, again, over time evolve a narrative that they're using the opioid to uh, treat their pain and therefore it's justified, although there's no good evidence that opioids work long-term for chronic pain. The other things that I see in people who become uh, addicted to opioids is that they're very energizing for them. So we often think of op opioids as, as um, people sort of lying around half asleep in an opium den. Um, but in fact, many people are energized by opioids and will use them as a way to uh, get through the day and to get things done. So people who um, are very, um, you know, want to be, want to accomplish a lot will often justify their opioid use uh, for, for that reason and have difficulty uh, stopping opioids because they find that um, after stopping, they, they don't experience the same energy boost. Wow, that's counterintuitive. I think of opi opioids as leading you to do less, but a lot of people are finding them that Maybe it enables them to get through the day with more energy because they have less pain? No, it's not probably tied to pain relief. It's just how that particular individual's molecular substrate responds to uh, the molecule that is the opioid. Uh, and and these, are, these are things that you can't predict. 
Um, every, I mean, just like with alcohol, some people get euphoric and energized. Some people fall asleep. Everybody's different. But in my experience, people who really like opioids um, um, experience them as energizing. Uh, a similar uh, analogy, an analogy to that is uh, stimulants. So, um, you know, ADHD um, medications or even just street methamphetamine. Many individuals who uh, become addicted to uh, those those drugs will tell you that um, paradoxically stimulants make them feel relaxed, that they yeah. actually feel calmer uh, when they take stimulants, which is, again, counterintuitive when you're thinking about uh, the effects on the brain of a stimulant. That's really fascinating. And I'm thinking that, and, and, and tell me if I have this right, that if you're somebody who's taking some opioids and you're finding they're giving you a lot of energy, that almost might be a warning sign that for you, there's a special risk. Absolutely. And I think the other really important warning sign is just simple quantity and frequency. If you're taking an opioid every day, if you're using more and more to get the same effect, then you should be very thoughtful and very careful about what is happening to you. Uh, because people can often lose insight and judgment around and, and find themselves addicted before they know it. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about, too, about how where alcohol and cigarettes used to be a gateway into harder drugs? Can you talk a little bit about how now it's more the opioids and the stimulants that are being prescribed? So the original gateway theory put forth many decades ago uh, basically vilified um, the legal drugs of nicotine and alcohol um, by saying that there was something unique in these drugs that uh, made the brain, uh, um, turned the brain into kind of a drug-seeking uh, machine and, and made people vulnerable to trying harder drugs. So, the, so alcohol and nicotine were called the gateway to harder drugs. But today, this whole gateway hypothesis has really been turned on its head because access to drugs in, in this day and age is really unrivaled and unprecedented in our history. The, the number and uh, variety and potency of drugs that people have access to now, really, uh, you know, with a dial of their phone or a send of a text message, is remarkable. And it's very potent hard drugs. So people, you know, think of heroin as this horrible hard drug. But, you know, again, as I said before, prescription opioids are pretty much the same as heroin. And people can get those from their doctors. They can get the equivalent of street methamphetamine from uh, prescription for Ritalin or Adderall. Um, people are synthesizing drugs uh, of all kinds and varieties never seen before in laboratories and selling these online. So there's an incredible um, access to drugs that's really unprecedented and which, which really means that there's no more gateway anymore. You have young people whose very first exposure may be ecstasy. Uh, which is, you know, a very uh, potent stimulant and hallucinogen and uh, something that, you know, again, a generation or two ago uh, would have been very difficult to obtain and would have been tried only uh, much later in someone's drug-using career. How does a gateway mechanism work on kind of a neurobiological level? Well, there's a lot of um, sort of discourse and disagreement about whether it is a neurobiological phenomenon or it's just merely an environmental phenomenon mm -hmm. re related to access. 
but but certainly there is this um, idea that that once you use uh, any kind of addictive drug, in a sense, you're priming the brain um, by altering the pleasure pain pathway and uh, causing a neuroadaptation, which makes the brain more vulnerable to all addictive drugs. So, for example, if, if uh, you train a, um, a rodent in a laboratory to become addicted to marijuana and then take marijuana away for a sustained amount of time for the addiction to essentially pass, and then you expose that same rodent to cocaine and compare how quickly the rodent gets addicted to cocaine compared to rodents who have never been exposed to any drugs, what you find is that those who were previously exposed to marijuana uh, become addicted to cocaine much faster than those who were never exposed to a drug. So it is based on these data, as well as our clinical experience, um, that we believe that once an individual has engaged in heavy and sustained drug use, uh, there, that may incur some permanent alterations in the brain, such that any future drug use, even after a sustained period of abstinence, makes them more vulnerable to addiction. Fascinating. Yes. And now the, that heavy and sustained drug use can be a stimulant prescribed by a doctor for ADD when you were, you know, 12. Yes, I believe that's true, but you should be aware there's tremendous controversy in the field about whether uh, stimulants prescribed for a, a mental condition for which stimulants are indicated, like ADHD, whether or not that um, increases the risk of uh, future drug and alcohol use problems. That's a very controversial uh, area and literature, and, and the data are, are not conclusive either way. Uh-huh. No, thank you. So what should, what should somebody do if, as they're listening to this, Dr. Lemke, they're thinking, maybe this is me. Uh, and then the next follow-up question, and handle them both, is maybe this isn't me, but it's a loved one, or it's a guy I'm close to in the next office. Well, I think one of the things to consider is to go and see an addiction medicine specialist like myself. Um, we, you know, in our clinic at Stanford, for example, any law student could easily uh, make an appointment and come and see um, me or somebody on my team. And you don't need to wait till you know you have a problem to do that, even if you're just sort of wondering if you have a problem. Um, one of the things that we do is get a good history and then do a lot of psychoeducation about you know, well, based on what you've told me, it does sound like you have a problem or it sounds like you might be headed toward having a problem. Or maybe you don't have a problem, but these are the things to watch out for uh, going forward. So, so I think uh, it's, you can never, you can never you know, be harmed by just going and talking to a specialist, telling them your story and your concerns and getting uh, some informed uh, you know, feedback about that. Uh, there are also what? a number. Uh, I was going to say there are a number of wonderful uh, resources online. Um, for example, uh, there's a, a group and a website called Moderation Management, uh, specifically for problem alcohol drinkers. So these are people who are not yet addicted, but who are concerned about their alcohol use. And there are all kinds of online groups and tips and strategies for how to cut back. There's also various harm reduction sites that people can go on to to, to learn about. Um, you know, uh, how, to, how to cut back if they're, if they're engaging in problem drinking. There are books that have been written on this. So there are a lot of resources which you can also engage in anonymously, which, which some people prefer. You know, there's, I should, I should note 
that in law, there's also a group called the Other Bar, and you can easily <laughs> find them online. And uh, they're they're comprised of a group of very very high functioning lawyers, people that were partners at a law firm that fell prey to addiction, and now they're on the other side. So I want to give them a, a shout out among all the other groups that are, are out there. Yes, thanks, Joe, for mentioning the other bar. I want to add, too, that psychotherapy can be useful for people who are wanting to explore their relationship to substances, and I see a fair number of law students and lawyers in my private practice working on these issues. And actually, law school is a great time to think about getting some good wellness habits in place before you officially enter what may be a stressful job in the profession and why you have a little bit more time. My sense I got from reading your book is that patients must have been relieved when they find somebody who says, you've got addiction and I'm someone that deals with addiction, as opposed to this being a a kind of a tertiary problem. There's definitely a sense of relief when people with full-blown addiction who are in that terrible cycle of intoxication and withdrawal, leading the double life where they're pretending on the one hand to not be doing drugs and alcohol and having alcohol and drug-related problems. On the other hand, scrambling to get drugs, going into debt, having all kinds of consequences. There's definitely a sense of catharsis when they land in a place where someone says, let's talk about this problem. Do you find that, Sarah, in your practice? You know, yes, I do. People are often coming to me with different expectations. So sometimes it can take a while for that material to come out. But I think once people realize that they're in a safe space with no judgment, yes, absolutely. They're quite happy just to talk freely about it. Yes. One of the myths about addiction is that every addict is in denial. Denial is certainly, um, you know, a powerful uh, coping strategy and defense mechanism in the face of the irrational behavior that constitutes addictive behaviors. But in my experience, there are lots of people out there with addiction who are fully aware that they have that problem, who are not in denial about it, and would actually like some help and have trouble finding that help. This has been so helpful. I've learned a lot. I would love to end if you wouldn't mind just sharing some of, I know you have a stressful career like a lot of lawyers, you do as well. And if you wouldn't mind just telling us some of the ways that you thrive in your profession, what types of wellness techniques you use. One radical wellness technique that I use, which is very counterculture, is that I do not own a smartphone or any kind of cell phone. Um, Sometimes there are situations in which that can be be somewhat of a handicap, particularly professionally, particularly when I'm traveling. But in general, I have no regrets about that decision. I feel incredibly liberated not to be constantly wondering, uh, you know, who's calling me and uh, have, you know, have that sort of thing in my pocket, kind of like a Pandora's box, just waiting for me to, to check it. Um, and the, the, the more that time passes, I, I, I keep thinking there's a day when that will come where I'll have to cave and, and, and get a smartphone or a cell phone of some sort. But in fact, I'm experiencing the opposite. I'm experiencing an incredible sense of liberation and joy. I advise to people, because no, no people don't need to be as radical as I and get rid of their smartphone, but certainly we need to consciously decide to turn it off and take phone holidays and kind of reset our brains. Uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, it's incredibly distracting and it's, it's really hard to come up with a complete thought 
when you're always checking your phone. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that. I've been toying with that idea myself, and you've really inspired me. That is definitely a radical wellness technique and one that I think a lot of people could really benefit from. So thank you so much for sharing that. Listeners could do a little experiment and uh, uh, set aside an hour this weekend where uh, their smartphone is turned off. I highly recommend doing that. I don't think an hour is enough to reset the brain. (laughs) What I would recommend is at least 24 hours. But the other phenomenon for people to notice is actual physiologic withdrawal from turning off their phone, which they may experience as irritability, anxiety, dysphoria, or even insomnia. But if they can just Wow, that is so interesting. Yep, they can just, it's really incredible to, to do this experiment. I mean, I have done this myself, not so much with my phone, but just with compulsively checking my email. You know, at first I have a surge of anxiety, kind of a ruminative preoccupation. And then, but if I can just ride that wave and get through it, then I forget about it. And then my brain really feels genuinely different after about 24 hours. And I mean, different and better. Right. And of course, those same type of withdrawal symptoms go for other symptoms, I mean, other substances as well. So it's sort of a nice uh, tie in to to the podcast. But thank you so much for sharing that about your phone. That is very inspiring for me. Well, great. I'm happy to do it and happy to be on your show today. Okay. Thanks again. Yes, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Lemke. It's been such an interesting conversation and also, I hope, quite helpful for people who may be thinking about their relationship to alcohol and other substances. And if anyone's been listening and would like to visit the addiction clinic at Stanford or to utilize any of the other resources we spoke about on the podcast, please see our website and we will have a list of resources there. And thanks again for listening and please tune in next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast. 